Welcome to Classic Comics, everyone. My name is Matthew B. Lloyd, and I will be your guide as we explore the world of comics before the advent of the Silver Age. Thanks for tuning in to the Comics in Motion Network. Before we get started, remember you can follow the Classic Comics Show on Twitter at Comics Lloyd, or contact the show via email at ClassicComicsNBL at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at MattB underscore Lloyd and at DCComicsNews.com where I'm assistant editor and write reviews. In the notes section, you can find the Amazon link to Black Panther and Philosophy, What Can Wakanda Offer the World, the Black Panther book to which I've contributed. And you can also check out my chapter in Politics in Gotham, The Batman Universe and Political Thought, co-authored with Ian Drake. Additionally, my co-author Ian Drake and I have turned in the first draft for another volume on Batman, Arkham Souls, the villains and villainesses of Gotham. I don't have a publication date for this yet. I'll be sure to share more when I can. Currently, there's a search for a new publisher for the project, so hopefully there'll be some positive news on that front soon. On to the show! Thank you for joining me today. Today we are going to look at Marvel Comics number one. So the first comic published by Tommy Publications, which eventually becomes Marvel Comics in the 60s. The Marvel Comics we know today. And as you know, I almost always go on, uh, on my gut when I decide on a topic for an episode. Of course, I do have ideas that I've planned out, but for whatever reason, I have been reading a ton of Golden Age Marvel stuff lately. And I say a ton. Let's not say a ton. I've read a lot of Golden Age Marvel. I went back and reread the first volume of the Captain America Marvel Masterworks. So Captain America comics went through four. I read the decades uh, reprint book that Marvel did on Human Torch versus Submariner in the 40s. I read the first volume of Human Torch comics, Marvel Masterworks, uh, and I've just been on a kick for whatever reason. So, today we're going to do uh, Marvel Comics number one. I I've read this uh, a number of times over the years. We'll be working from the Marvel Masterworks uh, reprint, obviously. I, I, I clearly don't have the original comic in any form. I don't even know if there's been a facsimile reprint of a single edition. There, there probably has been, but for whatever reason, I don't have that. But I do have the uh, the Marvel Masterworks copy uh, that reprints the first uh, four issues of Marvel and Marvel Mystery Comics, and we'll get to that that title change at some point here. Uh, we're going to go through the issue. We won't read everything. It's an entire. It's in in its entirety, but we will uh, go through uh, the 
most pertinent stories with the more detail. So that's going to be Human Torch, Namor, the Samariner, and the Angel. And of course, as I said, this is uh, the first comic published by Timely Publications, which we know becomes Marvel Comics officially in the 60s. Although they would refer to themselves as Marvel Comics at times in the 40s. Um, there was little rhyme or reason to uh, why they had a particular name at one time or another. I, I feel like it had to do something with paying taxes or escaping the government in, in some way uh, through paperwork so they didn't have to pay something. I, that's, that's, that's my general sense with all the name changes that Marvel would go through, official name changes, uh, that if you follow the Indicia, some of the, the, the names of the company, uh, and even DC had multiple names uh, early on, and uh, same thing, quality comics, same thing. So there's got to be some legal loophole they're, they're going, to, going through to, to avoid a fee or something. But anyways, this is the first public... This is the first comic published by Marvel, or rather Timely, and I apologize if I use the terms interchangeably throughout. It's, it's very hard to not say Marvel. The book was uh, put together by uh, Martin Goodman, who uh, would have been the head, was the head of the company. He had been publishing uh, pulp magazines, and he wanted to get into the comic book business, uh, seeing the... Uh, the money being made by other publishers at the time and he instead of hiring anyone to produce the book he went to one of the comic book packagers at the time the uh, the, the packages they, they had all the creative and would produce the comics and then uh, sell the the product the finished product to a publisher for publication and those, uh, that packager, that publishing, that workshop that we're talking about in, uh, in the case of Marvel Comics, number one is uh, Funnies Incorporated that was uh, uh, started in, and run by Lloyd Jaquette. And he was the one that had Carl Burgos, Paul Gustafson, Bill Everett uh, uh, on staff, and they were producing the comics and so that's why those guys here are here and shortly after the success of Marvel Comics number one apparently uh, just some quick research uh, cover dated uh, October 1931 I'm sorry 1939 initially this is episode 31 uh, the uh, it sold 80,000 copies initially uh, and he saw how well it did, so he had a second printing of it, uh, changed the date on the Indicia, and had a sticker over the October on the cover to say November, and put it out again with uh, an, another 800,000 copies being sold. So he knew he was on to something, and uh, that was the beginning. So as we take a look at the cover here, it's a classic cover that people generally know if they're into comics. It's the Human Torch melting his way through a steel wall uh, with a, a gunman firing at him as he tries to escape. It doesn't look like the Human Torch as we 
come to know him. Uh, there's a lot of detail on the face we don't we don't ever really get with the torch, um, but uh, the cover was by pulp artist Frank R. Paul, who did a lot of covers for uh, Goodman's Pulp magazines. So that's what we get with uh, the Human Torch on the cover of issue number one. There's also a uh, blurb on the bottom left-hand corner. It says, featuring Kazar the Great, 12 pages of jungle adventures. And I'm sure some of you will know Kazar, or Kazar, which is probably the right way to pronounce it, uh, is a, a character that will show up later on in... Uh, in the 60s and 70s and current Marvel comics but this is the first version of the character and we'll go over that uh, a little bit uh, more when we get to his story also at the in the box up up in the right hand side of the issue it says this month the human torch the angel submariner masked raider so not that these are characters anyone would have ever heard of uh, except for Kazar, 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 because he would have been in uh, a few pulp magazines beforehand. But uh, this is uh, this is the cover, and as I said, we're in the Marvel Masterworks reprint, and we're gonna turn over. Well, no, no, we're not. We're not gonna turn over yet. After talking about the cover, first we're gonna talk about the title. This is the only comic published by Marvel called Marvel Comics until 2019 I believe. I don't think there's any other random issues here or there. But oddly, for some reason the title is called Marvel Mystery Comics after the first issue. And what's even stranger is the mystery is so small when it's put over the uh, the the, the cover logo uh, that you can barely see it so it still essentially looks like the title of the comic is is Marvel Comics it doesn't really look like it's Marvel Mystery you would you have to really kind of get get up on it and see it to realize that it's it's there and it's done in a way that almost looks like it it's a last-minute addition to uh, to the cover especially if you look at issue number two it looks very clunky <laughs> the way uh, the way it appears I guess it's not so clunky later on when they have a uh, uh, the more standard logo that we're gonna see on Marvel Mystery Comics after uh, after a number of uh, that lasts for a number of years I'm trying to get to issue number three here to take a look at the cover for that for that one too, just so I have a uh, reference. And with number three, we get the uh, the more familiar Marvel mystery logo, but still, uh, with that, the mystery bit looks like it's just somebody drew a a box with mystery and put it right on there and. If you step back and see it from a distance, it really looks like it just says Marvel Comics with something sort of obscuring part of comics. So it's there, there's a mystery. That's the real thing there. Um, in the introduction to the the uh, the collection here, uh, Roy Thomas does mention it that it is a strange 
name change in it. There's something to do with Marvel Mystery Oil, uh, like a motor oil, but apparently no one's been able to find out too much about that. So, some sort of product recognition uh, going on. I don't really know. Uh, it doesn't really make sense to me. And what's also odd is, I said, like I said, I've been reading a lot of uh, these Golden Age uh, comics and Marvel comics and timely comics. And and what's really interesting is that in the the next issue box, it doesn't say, you know, in the next issue of Marvel Mystery Comics, it just says Marvel Comics. Follow the Human Torch and next in Marvel Comics. And like you go to the the like once the torch gets his own title and you're into issue four and five, which is going to be into like 1941, maybe 42 with the last one. Uh, same thing. So it's a couple years in and they're still calling their series in-house Marvel Comics, not Marvel Mystery Comics. The same with the Submariner stories. And it makes you wonder, is it the company name they're trying to say? Like only from Marvel Comics can you see these characters? Or is it about the title of the comic which they appeared Marvel Mystery Comics but it's really in-house they thought of it as Marvel Comics and they just had to add that mystery on there for some other reason that's that's been lost to time I guess it's one of those strange things uh, that, that happen in the history of comics that either remain a mystery that remain a mystery so all right well let's go ahead and get to it let's open up and turn to page one the first story we get is the human torch and interestingly the uh the very small splash panel at the top small for a splash panel but it does take a, a maybe a fourth of the page uh, is the human torch melting his way through a, a steel wall much like we see on the cover that there's no uh, there's no uh, gunman uh, in the shot being chased. Uh, now, I will weigh your appetite before I, I get going with this story that uh, I will try not to talk too much about the torch at length, but we will visit the story because I do have uh, an upcoming episode planned with uh, the uh, half of the founding team of Comics in Motion, uh, Dave Horrocks, we're going to do an episode on the Golden Age Human Torch. Uh, so, I will not spend too much time uh, waxing about that, but instead we'll just try to stick to the story. So here we have uh, uh, a man speaking to a couple of guys at a table. Gentlemen of the press, I called you to my laboratory because I, Professor Horton, have a difficult problem in my latest discovery. As you all know, I've been working on a synthetic man, an exact replica of a human being. When I finished, I found I had surpassed anything that it, any scientist had ever done. If you'll follow me, I'll show you why. Even I fear the monstrosity which I created. That should have been read. I'll show you why even I fear the monstrosity which I've created. In this airtight glass cage lives my creation. I call him the Human Torch. And... Behind Horton is uh, a glass, a giant glass test tube, essentially, uh, with open end down, so it's sealed at the bottom. And inside is what appears to be a man in a blue jumpsuit with a belt. Torch is not going to have his uh, traditional uh, red and uh, yellow 
uh, jumpsuit yet. In this airtight glass cage lives my creation. I call him the Human Torch. Something went wrong with my figurines, figuring somewhere. Every time this robot, the Human Torch, contact, contacts oxygen in the air, he bursts into flame. Now watch. As Horton allows some air into the cage, the others gasp in terror. The torch is now uh, on fire. Good lord, that figure is a wall of fire. Horton, destroy that man before some madman can grasp its principles and hurl it against their civilization. No, says Horton. Sorry, gentlemen, but you see, destroying him does not answer anything. Then perhaps the power of the press will help change your mind. And the next day, or not even the next day, that's how fast newspapers worked back then. Within the hour, newsies are on the street with an extra. Uh, it's like going to the internet and uh, and getting the latest news from uh, from the internet. Extra, read all about the man of fire, the human torch. As Horton reads the paper in his study, the phone buzzes, breaking the room's eerie silence. Hello? Yes, this is Horton. Who is this? The scientist skilled. You want to see my creation? Certainly, any time. You say, tonight? Very well. At eight. That evening. Eight bells, you're on time, boys. And a uh, glassed and bearded and hatted man walks in. You know, Horton. Those newspapers have aroused the public, and we three have been sent to investigate this so-called human torch. I thought so, my friends. Come this way, please, and I will show you everything. To be truthful, even I can't understand this strange phenomenon. It's hard to say what it might be, spontaneous combustion, but who knows? Perhaps we might be able to analyze him, Horton. He looks harmless enough. Do you mind feeding him some air, Horton, so we can measure the heat given with his pyrometer? Very well. As air leaks in the, in, the weird flame livens like a hellish fire. Good lord, the hand of the meters have already gone off the dials. What? The meters snap. The heat is too great. And you have no control over the flame? None whatsoever. That is why I'm afraid. And now that you're seeing it, what is your opinion? Horton, this may hurt. But since you've no control over him, I'm inclined to agree with the newspapers. Destroy him. Surely there must be some other way than to break him up. For who knows, in the course of experimentation, I might hit on a device to gain control of and master this mechanical torch. There is a way out, Horton, and two men in a block of concrete, so that... That's it. If I can find the solution, I can dig him out. And that way there's no danger. Eureka! That's the answer. And so... Horton gets the torch entombed in a steel tube and consequently uh, buries it in a large cube of concrete. Now I say a large tube of concrete and what I mean is there's been a frame built out in a vacant lot outside of, tor of uh, Horton's laboratory home and it's got to be, it looks to be, I don't know, 20 feet tall, something like that. And it's dropped into the uh, center. The tube is dropped into the center of the concrete. And then the concrete is prepared to set. Uh, and so some time passes. And everybody had forgotten about the fireman 
until one early morning there was a terrifying blast and the earth split open. The windows of Horton's nearby home were shattered to bits. Good heavens, what was that? I wonder what it could be. Ye gods, that was the human torch's tomb. Could he have been destroyed? He must have been. Nothing could survive a blast like that. Nothing, unless unless there was a leak in the airtight tube in which he was buried. A leak. But that's impossible. I sealed it myself. And then we get the first picture of the human torch in uh, in public. And he is racing down the street on fire. Uh, people jumping aside, gasping. But there had been a leak, a slow leak, allowing the oxygen to seep in slowly. The human torch, in contact with air, spreads terror through the city as everything he touches turns into an inferno. Fire! It's the human torch! He's on loose! And he speaks for the first time. I'm burning alive. Why must everything I touch turn to flame? And he is speaking, so he's obviously already learned how to speak, but certainly we don't know how. <laughs> we didn't see any of that. Attracted by the clang of fire engines after somebody had turned in an alarm, the human torch turns. Look, the human torch! Busy, men! Ha! I like the sound of that bell, says the torch. Well, what are you guys waiting for? Come on, get the house hose into action. Yes, sir. Hurry, that guy's still here. Water ought to do the trick. As water spurts onto the human torch, a hissing sound bellows, a cloud of smoke rises, but the firemen are dumbfounded as... Glory be! The guy's laughing! It ain't human! Ha! <laughs> Stop! It tickles! As the human torch steps on a hose, it burns through, and the water spurts out. The flames once again shoot up, and the human torch is on the loose again. I must find a retreat. I've already caused too much damage. It looks like a pool in there. Perhaps that will put out this flame. Coming to an iron gate, the human torch pauses. Gripping the iron gate in its flaming hands, the human torch melts its way through the heavy bars. Those iron bars can't stop me. Leaving a trail of blazing grass, the human torch dives into the pool. Meanwhile, in the house on the estate with the pool. That's funny. The grass around the pool is boiling, Sardo. Ah, you nuts, Red. Wait a minute. Did you say something that's burning? That means but one thing. Huh? Now listen. Get the winter glass cover that fits the pool. Draw the air out. Then drain the water out. Hurry. Don't ask questions. Later. Ha! I thought so. It's the human torch. So what? That's what I like about you, Red. You're so stupid. I don't like that kind of talk, Sardo. Forget it, Red. We got a million dollar racket and don't need to worry about cops now. From now on, we're Red. We're in the fire insurance business. Okay, if you say so, Sardo. So, this, uh, this gangster type who apparently has a nice house is, with a pool. He's going to start a, uh, a fire protection racket, or at least an insurance business. And uh, what he decides to do is uh, use, the use the torch to set fires after he uh, sells them insurance. So, later on he shows up at a business. Uh, yes, sir. What, yes, sir. What can I do for you? I'd like to see Mr. Harris, please. And who shall I say is calling? Uh, just say Mr. Stardo and tell him it's hot stuff. There's a man, there's a Mr. Sardo outside to see you. He says it's hot stuff. Hot stuff? What's that? Oh, well, cinnamon. Uh, Mr. Harris, I'll be brief. Unless you sign it for my protection insurance, you won't have any more raw steel left in your warehouse. Oh, a racketeer, eh? Listen, Sardo, I don't need any insurance. I hate punks like you, so get out now. 
If I do you a favor, Harris, you'll be sorry. Watch. Sardo jumps into action. Did you have any luck, Sardo? Nah, get moving. We got work to do, and fast. Sardo and his lieutenant head for their mansion, where they strangely hold the human torch. Now, Red, I'll fill the pool with water, then get a driving suit and glass tube to fit the human torch. You'll find in my lab. Yeah, okay, Sardo. So they get him out, and they take him to the the, the, the steel warehouse, and he they set him up in the in the glass tube, and then he throws a, a brick and burn and breaks the tube, and the torch bursts into flame. As the human torch walks about, unable to grasp the meaning of it all, the warehouse becomes a mass of flame. I confess, I don't understand. I thought Sardo was trying to help me. Then he brings me here and breaks the cover. I wonder if he might be just a low-down racketeer. The human torch tries to figure the reason Sardo is using him. That's it. He must be. Why else let me loose in this tinderbox? Sardo's a business wrecker. I've got to get out and see him. Uh-oh. The roof caved in. That's my way out. And so he leaps, and uh, even he is surprised that his leap turns out to be a flight through space. The reason was that the blue and combined red flames made the human torch lighter than air. So the hotter he gets, uh, he gets a little bit lighter, and that's how he is allowed to fly. Uh, and so he takes off to try to stop Sardo and his mom. Sardo is taken by surprise by the torch, sudden appearance on his crowns, but what's this flash of fire coming in my place? Huh? It's a human torch. Ha! Huh. You're a fool, Sardo. Why lock the door? I'll get you in the end. A closed door can't stop the human torch. He walks right through it. So this is essentially supposed to be what we're seeing on the cover. The cover is human torch melting his way through the steel. Uh, it looks like a vault on the cover, but it's just a door. And uh, the guy on the cover is Sardo. Good lord, he's burning through the doors. I gotta hide, but where I got it, it's my underground lab, it's steel. I'll stop him. He'll never get me there. The walls are made of 12-inch battleship chromium steel plates. While in the house above, I wonder where Sardo disappeared to. I saw him run in here. As the house collapses, a lone figure stands erect. It's the human torch, untouched in the fiery inferno, helping the destruction with his own heat. It's funny, but I can't find Sardo in these ruins. I wonder... <laughs> and he laughs. It was easy to burn Sardo's home down. Sardo's mob leave their leader and try to run away when they see the torch. As the human torch leaps forward, the others spread out, some diving into the pool. Sardo's man, Red, ducks under a, a nearby car. <coughs> and the human torch doesn't take any prisoners. Jumping through space like a comet, the human torch lands on the car and melts the body as if it were made of butter. And the guy underneath is yelling, Help! It's killing me! The heat's killing me! Uh, that rat burned, all right. And those fellows in the pool won't come up for air now. Uh, so, he heads back to the house, having killed at least one gangster. And he reaches the steel door. So this is the actual cover here. And uh, Sarno's inside. <laughs> so you think you're going to get me? Not in a million years, Mr. Torch. He feels super secure behind the steel walls. But Sardo's laugh wasn't funny as the human torch melts through the steel door without exertion. Hello, rat. Sardo, in an attempt to bring the torch under his control, dons a gas mask and hurls a gas bomb at him with no effect, the heat causing it to fizz before it can even touch the human torch. Having fun, Sardo? 
The Human Torch laughs. And bids Sartre to watch him as he picks up a bomb. It instantly melts. A bomb. Why is there a bomb? There's a bomb in his laboratory, I guess. Sardo, in a half craze, picks up a tank of liquid R just as he's about to fling it. The clang of the fire engines catches the attention of both men. While the firemen fight the roaring blaze from the outside, Horton spots a tank full of nitrogen. He rushes into the flames. So Horton has, uh, has heard about what's going on and is, is following, uh, following along. But just as the torch appears on the scene, and he too sees the tank, with a mighty leap, his arms close around the slim tank, melting it, and the nitro gas shoots up while Horton's eyes pop with his amazement. It's incredible. If I hadn't seen it, the flames die down and the torch is himself again. Uh, he is no longer on fire. The fire chief, seeing this, draws his gun. This will be a better world without you, Mr. Torch. But the still super hot skin saves the torch from destruction. The lead pellet melts as it lands between the eyes. Now, this is a pretty cool here. He, uh... When the bullet uh, hits him in the forehead, his body is still so hot from the flames that it melts on contact instead of piercing the skin, or his piercing the body. With a surging laugh, the human torch whirls and makes a sudden dash back into the blazing embers. He's back. He's back. But wait, what's this? His flame is out. Why? So he's come upon Sardo. Rushing to a corner. Uh, Sardo gets a tube of nitro gas and offers it to the torch. So, he's he's got himself flame on again. But the human torch flies forward and quickly rests the tank from Sardo's grip. Thanks, Sardo. This will come in handy. But as for letting you go, never. Listen, I do anything you say, only don't burn me. You rat, you should have thought of that before you decided to make me the goat for your racket. The human torch springs into action and starts destroying Sardo's laboratory. Then leaping... In ape-like fashion, he rips the chemical-laden shells down. Now's my chance, and final chance to get him. When he grips a tank of sulfuric acid and sneaks up behind the torch, hurling the tank, it explodes before it even touches the human torch. Poor fool, killed by his own hand. Grabbing an insulated tank of nitrogen, the only gas that will control this flame, the torch walks out of the burning lab. We heard an explo explosion out here. What was it? A rat dealt out justice to himself, Horton. Hey, Chief, I just saw Horton talking to the torch. So it's more of the torch work, eh? The police have now arrived. Meanwhile, the torch leaves Horton and moves into the flames to experiment with the nitro. I hope this nitro will bring complete control over my flame. It works. I can now control the flame without the nitro. Good Lord, I can throw the flame as I would a ball. Meanwhile, the Chief runs back to his car and sends a message over the ether. Attention all cars! Close in on the torch! He's headed down Spruce Street. Hurry, I'll trail him just in case. Now, the torch is just walking down the street like nothing's going on. Uh, on fire. I wonder if that car's following me. I wonder. I'm sure it is. His suspicions confirmed the torch shoots ahead like a comet, the car being left far back in the distance. But at the corner, a blockaded police car seemingly trapped the torch. Okay, come and get me. It's no use. The heat's too great. We can't even get near him. Wait, don't go. Watch. Look, the flame is out. He's, uh, flamed off. Sorry I caused you so much trouble. I didn't know you were after me. It's okay. You can take me. My body's cold. Later at police headquarters. Torch, you've committed the most dastardly crime, burning a warehouse, and then proceeding to destroy Sato's estate. Why? 
Burning the warehouse was Sardo's plan to shake down the company for protection. As for me, I was a victim of circumstances. All of which is part of Sardo's plan for a racket. Yes, I am guilty of burning Sardo's estate, but it was of his own doing. He set me free in air, thereby allowing me to ignite. Horton speaks. Captain, lead the torch in my custody. I'll be responsible. Very well, Horton. The torch is in your custody. <laughs> He'd probably burn the jail down if I didn't do so. Horton leads the torch to his car and heads at once for Horton's home. This might be in interest to you, Horton. I have completely control over my flame now. What? If he has control over the flame, I can make a fortune through him, thinks Horton. Torch, I'd like to see an example of your control, please. Uh, torch orders Horton to place an unlit cigar in his mouth. You see, I turn my flame on and merely point. Ah, there, your cigar is lit. A perfect example of flame control. It's amazing. We can make a fortune. How's that, Prof? So, even you've been touched by the possibility of a fortune in me, eh, Horton? No, Horton. I'll be free and no one will ever use me for selfish gain or crime. He lifts his hand up and spins it in a circle, uh, burning a hole in the ceiling. Then, with a laugh and a mighty leap, crashing through the unburnt opening in the roof, the torch sails through space like a comet. Next month, another human torch picture action story. So that's it. That is the first appearance of the Human Torch in Marvel Comics number one. Wow. What an interesting... such an interesting story. It's such an interesting character. I'm going to try not to say too much because I really want to save most of that for Dave. But uh, he's not a straightforward hero, right? Starting starting out of the gate. he's uh, he's uh, falls in with the whole misunderstood monster almost uh, approach to things like a like a Frankenstein's monster sort of thing really uh, really intriguing I, I really like uh, the character there's so much I think that could be done with it okay so let's turn over to the next page and take a look at the angel by Paul Gustafson I guess I should have mentioned that the first page the first human torch story is written and drawn by Carl Burgos um, who would do much of the work on the human torch in the 40s The Angel. At the point of a gun, a group of racketeers known as the Six Big Men have taken over an entire city, striking everywhere with only a moment's notice. A restaurant. You're finished, buds. Say your prayers. I'll pay, I'll pay. You had your chance to pay, but you didn't need any protection. A city official's home. I said fix that jury, or there'll be someone else doing your job tomorrow. A subway station. A wife and three kids, eh? You should have told that to your bosses. A nightclub. From now on, you're selling our brand of liquor. A gambling house. Get rid of him. I'm going to run this joint my way. Out on the island and dump him in the swamp. So, a group of civic-minded men call upon the mayor. Yes, yes, but let the policeman tell you his side of the story. We're helpless. There hasn't been one witness to testify for the state in the 200 arrests we've made while these rats have had dozens each to swear they were somewhere else. There's nothing I can do without the people's confidence. We'll take the law in our own hands then. Your Honor, I want you to swear in all of us as special investigators with full power to act as we see it. Yes, yes, yeah, certainly. Wait, gentlemen, I started this campaign against Crime Wave and I'd like to suggest something. Have any of you heard of the Angel? If you're thinking of hiring the Angel to clean up this mess, you're going to going a bit too far. He'll stop at nothing. 
Precisely. No trials of legal formalities contend with these so-called six big men will simply be wiped out. I'll start for Paris immediately where the angel was. Look out! A stone with a note wrapped around it. What does it say? Wait a minute. Holy cats, look at this. So, what's come through the window is uh, a note, I guess, uh, wrapped around a rock. And upon opening, uh, they see one by one they'll go, the six big men. And it has uh, the name of the... Uh, the, the gangster and uh, the racket they're running on the other side and the sign of the angel at the bottom which is uh, looks like the silhouette of an angel with uh, arms outstretched holding uh, the scales of justice in each hand well says one of the policemen you got what you wanted Dr. Lang except that the angel is one step ahead of you yes and now the six big men will know their doom and he's made one more addition to the list, the big boss. Besides that, my plans are working very well. <laughs> He'll never find out who the real big boss is, that I'm sure of. And sounds like Dr. Lang has uh, something else going on. Uh, the big boss sounds like uh, it's going to be Dr. Lang. Not that I've read this story before, but... Several days later, Gus Ronson, head of the Restaurant Production Association, is freed from a manslaughter charge by a fixed jury. Well, if it isn't the commissioner. It's, I have a surprise for you, Ronson. The angel has you on his list, right up on top. Hee-ha-ha-ha. Do you hear that? The angel's after me. Listen, copper, I don't believe in spooks or fairy tales. Ronson's boasting is suddenly cut short by a cold wind blowing across his face, and a shadow forms on the building across the street, shaping itself into a huge angel. Look, the angel. Jeez, just like a cold wind out of the grave. The shadow's fading. Maybe I'm losing my guts, but I got the jitters. I'm getting out of here. And as he uh, runs away, uh, a strange figure jumps from the roof of the courthouse to the lamppost and to the ground in front of the Ronson's car. Like a flash, he jumps into the back seat of the car. Uh, and this is the angel, and he is in a mostly blue uh, unitard with some uh, gold-looking bracelets angel wings on his chest and a red cape. Unaware that the mysterious stranger is in the back of his car, Ronson drives off at full speed. Get a hold of yourself. Nothing's going to happen. I could swear I heard something in the back. Before Ronson can turn to see what is in the back, a powerful arm clamps around his neck. Uh, you're choking me. The angel has him in a, in a grip. You're first on my list. Next will be your pal, Mike Ballone. So the angel confronts Malone and puts it on him, and uh, as Malone crumples into a heap, the angel turns towards uh, the guy who was with him. Who makes for the nearest exit? A window. You won't get me. No, you won't. In the confusion, the thug picked the wrong window instead of the one of the fire escape, and he falls out the window. Meanwhile, a woman quietly opens the door and places a note on the table for the angel. You can cross number three off your list. He was the one that went through the window. Number four is waiting for you. Be careful. Quickly, the angel rushes into the hall to see who had left the note for him, only to get a glimpse of a woman entering the elevator. Hmm. It looks as if there are other reasons and civic reasons these men are to be done away with. Very interesting. So number four is waiting for me. While in one of the underworld's dens, Trigger Bolo, head of the Retail Delivery Protection Association, waits for the angel. 
All set trigger. <clears throat> so the angel's gonna do it with me, eh? My trigger finger's itching to see that you bring him here. We got you, boss. Nice hole, trigger has. Fit only for rats to live in. Uh, he goes in and starts and takes on the uh, the guy's henchman. Seeing the gunman rushing towards him, the angel counterattacks with the fury of a charging lion, but cannot withstand the tremendous odds against him. He gets uh, clubbed over the back of the head with a pistol. Why they didn't just shoot him, I couldn't tell you. Uh, they tie his hands up, and he's waiting, and Trigger walks in. Good work, boys. See you're going to get rid of me, eh? Up against the wall with him. See this Tommy gun? It's going to cut you to pieces very slowly. Okay, stand back, boys. At that moment, the mysterious woman that left the warning note for the angel steps into the room. Not here, Trigger. That's an order. I'll take the orders how to run this racket, but not how to get rid of guys. You can tell that to the boss. The woman's face turns stern and her hand flashes a small automatic pistol. Trigger, you're stepping out too far. I, I'm sorry, Lil. I'm just kind of jittery and nervous. What's the orders? Steve Ankle is waiting upstairs. We three are to take the angel to the woods outside the city. Well, my hunch about the big boss was right. So Steve Ankle, the political fixer, Trigger Bolo, and the big boss's go-between are going to take me for a ride. Hmm. A few minutes later, the angel is placed in a car between Trigger Bolo and Steve Ankle, while Lil follows the three in her own car. Soon the two cars stop. Time to that tree. Come on, you. And so he's tied to the tree. And he says, I think I let this go too far. And the woman says, I want to make sure he's tied securely. As Lil steps behind the tree, she cuts the ropes with a sharp penknife. What the? Ask Ankle for a cigarette. The rest is up to you. As Steve Ankle is about to light the cigarette, the angel strikes. Get away from there, you fool. I'm going to shoot. No, no. You'll get me too. That's your tough luck. So he shoots through his, uh, his buddy to get the angel. So... To save himself, Steve Ankle opens up fire, too. Killed each other. Four and five. Thanks for saving my life. Wait. I didn't di I didn't save it. I'm just obeying orders. Just forget about the whole thing. Unable to catch the fast car of Lil, the angel turns to number six, Dutch Hansen. An hour's notice to close the books and make a deposit. It's too short a time. Hoop in that window. That breeze seems to be cold. As Dutch turns, he sees the angel. Instantly, he reaches for the gun on the desk, but the angel hurls a heavy chair and sends him crashing into the stone fireplace. All this money and a key to the Citibank safe deposit vaults. I think I'm beginning to see things, and this note from the boss to deposit it by 10 o'clock so he can check it over. It's 9.30. I'll have to move fast. Reaching the Citibank, but a few minutes before 10, the angel sees Lil walking in with a familiar man. Dr. Lang, who started this war on crime, so he's the big boss. Lil, doesn't have been here. No, and he never will be. The angel quickly enters the vault, unnoticed. A perfect plan, eh? Except you messed up the end. Will you tell your story to the police, or will I? Dr. Lang and Lil planned the rackets to proceed, which were to be deposited in his this vault, and split seven ways at the end of a year. That was why they wanted the six big men done away with, so there wouldn't be any splitting to do, and they'd have it all by themselves. And that is the end of the first story of Angel. No, uh, no, uh, no origin or anything like that. And uh, I read somewhere that the Angel is a riff on the uh, the character, the Saint, that uh, uh, that you may have been familiar with. There was a TV show in the '60s uh, and a uh, 
uh, I think a 70s or 80s version too, as well as uh, the Val Kilmer movie from the uh, the late 90s. That you may recall, but of course he had his uh, start in uh, in novels. Next to uh, the artwork by Bill Everett on the Submariner story, uh, which we're going to get to next, the uh, the Angel story has probably the best uh, the best artwork in the issue. Uh, after after Everett's after Everett's stuff, it's uh, he's gonna Paul Gustafson is gonna go on to do some work for quality uh, quality comics in the. Uh, in the 40s, but uh, this Angel one isn't 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 bad at all, and he's gonna he's gonna get a lot better in just a couple uh, in just a year or so. Um, a couple more things on the Angel. Uh, didn't mention it. He he doesn't wear a mask or anything, but he has a uh, uh, a little small uh, mustache, which is one of those things. It's gonna be really hard for him to have a secret identity of any kind. And I don't think he he really does. Um, I haven't done too much uh, diving in on on the character uh, to really know that, but I do know that he uh, is on the first, the second covers of what uh, issues number two and three that uh, Martin Goodman thought he was going to be a uh, the, the breakout star of the issue instead of Human Torch or uh, Submariner. Submariner doesn't appear on the cover till number four. Uh, something that Roy Thomas comments on in the introduction and it's uh, an interesting interesting observation and now we're going to take a brief pause to let you hear about some of the other great shows on the Comics in Motion Network and a couple other things you might be interested in In a world of stereotypes being called a geek comes with a certain image there is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream, and behind every geek is a real story. My dad was the one who got me into Star Wars and things. Join me, your super dummy Paul, as I continue my learning experience and talk to the real people. I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach 11 to 16 year olds in English. Subscribe to Era of Geek to hear their stories. He's one of them, like, you've ever going to grow up? And I'm like, no, why should I? I, I like my life, I, I enjoy what I do, this is my hobby. Search for Era of Geek on your favourite podcatcher or go to superdummy.co.uk slash geek. Imagine twin Earths, each the image of the verdant globe on which we live. Imagine these two worlds forever separated by a limbo of interdimensional space. Identical planets evolving separately across the millennia, each witnessing the birth of man, then the dawn of civilization. And finally, the beginning of the age of superheroes. On one world we'll call Earth 2, the superheroes begin to arrive in the early part of the 20th century when a rocket ship brought the star child Kal-El to safety. Kal-El begins his career as Superman in the early days of World War II as the first of the great heroes. Soon he was joined by other heroes and they joined forces to form the first super team in history, the Justice Society of America. Thus the two worlds knowingly coexist, one inhabited by the familiar Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and other heroes of the Justice League, 
and the other Earth by the original superheroes. These are the legendary members of the Justice Society. Available only on the Comics in Motion Network. Found wherever your podcasts find you. Hi, I'm Allison Shelton, writer and creator of the indie comic Reburn. You may have heard about us on Indie Comic Spotlight, thanks to Tony and Rhea. Reburn follows May, a superpowered woman who takes on the cult-like utopian society that ripped her life apart. Our comic picks up when she's ready to burn it all down. We're incredibly proud of our all-female team, myself, Artist Elise McCall, editor Jessica Patel, colorist Hilary Jenkins, and letterer Joe McGill. Renowned comic writer and artist Kari Andrews said of Reburn, It's an impressive debut, a violent, visceral, and emotion-fueled spectacle. A story you need to read right now. We agree. And we have hard copies and digital copies of issues 1 through 4 available on our website, reburncomic.com. That's R-E-B-U-R-N comic. Check it out. Honest conversations with interesting people. Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, and I talk to a wide variety of guests across an eclectic range of interesting topics. People I've spoken to include a magister from the Church of Satan, a blind Australian filmmaker, a puppeteer from Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, and I also speak to musicians of all kinds of genres, authors, actors, podcasters. Really, there is no limit to who I speak to, and the subject matter is endless. So if you believe in the art of conversation and want to hear different people talking about their passions, then this is the perfect show for you. You can find Genuine Chit Chat anywhere you listen to podcasts, and there's some video versions on YouTube, so there's no reason not to tune in. Welcome back. Let's turn over to the first Submariner story. Now, I think I've mentioned this uh, before when we did the uh, Submariner versus the Human Torch episode, uh, but we're going to go through the... Uh, through this story for you again here. Hopefully it's uh, not boring or rehash. So one of the things that jumps out about the Submariner story is the the look. It's very different. Uh, Everett is using a technique to really uh, make it look like a... Uh, the, the underwater bits are underwater. There's like a gray tone uh, to everything. It's possible the original uh, story was gonna be in a uh, a black and white comic, so it was treated differently. When the colors added, it just looks uh, like something very very different than what we're seeing. Uh, I have mentioned this before. Submariner first appeared in uh, motion pictures, uh, funnies weekly uh, is, is a giveaway. Uh, they 
didn't probably actually give away any of those. They just had some samples printed up, and this story we're going to read originally appeared there. At least the first eight pages did, and uh, here it's going to be uh, extended another four pages. I'll mention where it uh, originally ended, and then we'll uh, we'll finish it up. But uh, let's get over here to the uh, to the beginning and meet the Submariner for the first time. So we have a the uh, first page is split into three uh, uh, five panels. The top is one big panel, about a third of the page, uh, the splash panel, if you will. It's called it says the Submariner across the top by Bill Everett, and we see. Uh, Namor hold, uh, swimming up to a, a chest uh, on the bottom of the ocean next to an anchor, and that's what uh, the Everett's name is uh, written on the chest. And here's the the blurb for what we're about to get into. Here he is. Here, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here is the Submariner, an Ultraman of the Deep. Lives on land and in the sea. Flies in the air. Has a strength of a thousand men. Is a youth of dynamic personality, quick thought, and fast action. From whence does he come, and what is his mission? Uh, we see a, a salvage ship uh, and a diver is coming up. Uh, the diving platform is hoisted and swung to the deck of the salvage ship SS Recovery. Sometime later, the diver, Rod Nelson, steps from the decompression chamber and is asked what he found at the bottom. How do you feel, Nelson? Okay, Chief, but kind of puzzled. There's something screwy about that wreck. I found the safe in the main saloon, all right, but it looks like somebody got there before we did. The safe's empty. Then, too, it looks like whoever rifled it hasn't been gone long. There was a knife on the deck, and it hadn't even rusted. That's strange, says the captain. There's been no report of any other salvage ship in these waters for three years. We ourselves have been cruising here for a week, and we've seen no sign of life at all. Well, there's only one thing to do. I have to send you down again with Carla to see what evidence you can pick up. They may have left something by which you can identify them. Okay, send Carly ahead. I'll be with you in a minute. All set, Carly. I'll drop the acetylene torch as soon as you hit the bottom. And so Carly settles beneath the surface, little knowing the phenomenon he and Nelson are about to witness. On the bottom of the sea, they converse by telephone. Say, Rod, did you leave that high side hatch open, or was it sprung on the in the wreck? No, it was closed when I was down before. There's something uncanny about this. Come on, Rod, let's get inside. Turn on your light. We may need it. Good Lord, Carly, what's that? A swimmer rod, but, and they see, uh, over to the side, a, uh, a swimmer, and it is, it is, of course, Namor. It can't be. No human can live in this pressure. Yet he's swimming, and he was swimming. Yet he disappeared, and he was swimming. He can't be dead. Uh, and he is, of course, just wearing his little, uh, his little speedo trunks. Come on, let's follow him. He can't have gotten far. But the swimmer eludes them, and with long strokes of his powerful arms, rises to the deck of the sunken ship. Here he looks cautiously about him and sees the cables running from the divers to the surface water. And he says to himself, Those robots, they can't be men. Why? They're mechanical and so ponderous that they're shaped like men, and certainly they're not fish. I wonder, one of them had some kind of fire weapon. I better get out of here. These must be the control wires. I'll fix it so they can't follow me. So, uh, this is in the... Uh, deep sea diving back then is when you had a large pressure suit with a big tank like helmet and your air came through a tube uh, there was no uh, scuba scuba tank 
um, at this point that technology had not been developed so going to the bottom of the ocean was uh, much more cumbersome uh, you had uh, less movement and uh, completely different setup so uh, Namor is seeing the, uh, the the hoses and the and such that are uh, connecting the drivers to their air with five quick strokes the swimmer cuts the air hoses telephone cables and acetylene torch tube holy smoke our lines are cut Calling surface, calling surface, no answer. The divers, realizing their predicament, quickly shut their air valves and their helmets, thus imprisoning the air in their suits. Telephone wires severed, they are cut off from all communication. The Samariner darts to the door and attacks the divers. Stabbing one violently, he drops his knife and seizes the other's helmet, crushing it between his powerful hands. On the deck of the recovery, the mate sees bubbles on the water surface which warn him of the tragedy below. Nelson! Carly, Nelson! The wires are dead, the radio operator tries to connect with them. Anderson, get into your suit. You have to go below. Take lifelines, a knife, and another torch, and hurry. Aye, aye, sir. The captain sends another diver down. And then below, Anderson finds the crushed bodies of Carly and Nelson. The submariner watches in seclusion. Frightened and rising, and risking the bends, Anderson hauls himself rapidly to the surface. Back on deck in the decompression chamber, Anderson gasps out his report. The mate orders all hands to get the ship underway. We have to report to Coast Guard. Peters, man the anchor winch. From the depths of the submariner sees the powerful propellers begin to churn as the anchor is hoisted. With the speed of a bullet, he springs upward and with superhuman strength settles, settles the rudder. Jamming it to the right, he stops the starboard propeller with his bare hands. In the engine room, the first assistant reports excitedly to the bridge. Starboard propeller fouled, sir. What's that? Good lord, the rudder winch seems out of order. The ship won't respond. Unable to repair the unknown damage, the captain orders the engine stopped, but uncannily the ship proceeds for a coastal reef. The crew becomes panicky. With extraordinary strength, the Samander gives the unfortunate ship a terrific shove, and the recovery crashes high onto the rocks, splitting completely in two. Elated his feet of his own strength, the Submariner dives back to the submerged wreck. Gathering the diver's bodies in his arms, he speeds to the water. His winged feet propel him rocket-like into the greater depths, and, presents, and presently he faces a mammoth door and a secluded grotto. It opens at his command. Doma, open. He enters a huge chapel-like chamber and is addressed by a beautifully robed creature on the hall at the far end of the on the throne at the far end of the hall. Well, Namor, privileged one, what manner of prize dost thou bring us today? And this is uh, the king, and he is drawn slightly uh, fish-like with large eyes, and he's got a weird-looking mustache that looks like uh, uh, almost like a, like a a giant cat whisker coming off each side. Then I cannot truthfully say, Holy One, but thou shalt see for thyself. These I came upon and conquered, surprising them as they raided the earthmen's derelict. They came from a floating ship which I have wrecked with my great strength. I give them to you and pray you may be pleased. Great sharks, Namor, what type of prize dost thou call these? Open their casements. Let us see what they are made of. With infinite caution, the helmets are unscrewed and lifted up. Holy Mother of Neptune! They are Earthmen! And his mother uh, appears all of a sudden. He's in the room. 
Congratulations, my son. You've made a good beginning in our war of revenge. Why, mother? Carl, I command thee to ossify these creatures. Set them in the royal chamber, where they may be seen as examples to our worthy people. Done, your highness. But, mother, I don't quite understand. Why are the earth people so bad? Wasn't my father an earth man? Yes, my son, and a fine man, but his people were cruel. They invaded our ancient home deep in the waters at the South Pole, and nearly exterminated our entire race. I met your father in the year 1920, when a great ship, the Oracle, came from America on a scientific expedition. Your father, Commander Leonard Mackenzie, was the captain, and they made their base on an ice floe directly above our city. So, this now is the origin of the Submariner, which his mother is telling. And she's not named yet, but we know her, she, her name is Princess Fen. And, as we see at this point, Namor is only supposed to be 19 uh, uh, in 1939, if... Uh, well, maybe less than 19, because uh, they're not married yet. <laughs> During the weeks that followed, we were tormented with bombardments of high explosives. Our castles were demolished. Our husbands, wives, mothers, and even children were killed in droves. The white earthmen were blasting us out of existence with their infernal scientific investigations. Soon, many more shifts arrived, and finally, in desperation, our elders commanded an army to be formed, and I, most nearly resembling the female of the white race, was invested as a spy. Thou, Finn, beautiful goddess of the seals, thou shalt find thy way into the hands of these white monsters, there to work your feminine wiles to our racial advantage. Get thee hence while there is yet time. And so it was that on the same night I was found hunched up and shivering in a ship's hold just aft of the main mast. Great heavens, a stowaway! Captain, come quickly! Not realizing what I was or why I was there, and thinking me one of their own race, they hurried me to the commander, who was a good man, who, good man that he was, decided that I was insufficiently clad for that climate. After giving me heavy clothes in which I nearly suffocated, they fed me some of their food. What it was I didn't know, but it made me violently ill. The commander took pity on me, and although I could not understand his language, tried to comfort me with words. Within a very short time, we became fast friends, and I began to learn their strange tongue. They could never understand, though, how I could swim so much in the extremely cold water. Of course, I had to frequently, for we submariners cannot live out of water for longer than five hours at a stretch, and many of us cannot even live that long. Well, as the time went on, the commander and I fell in love, and we were married by their own ritual, and all the while I was giving secret information back to our people. We cannot win, master. They are too mighty. And they were too mighty, for even as our army assembled for the first counterattack, there came a terrible bombardment from above, which destroyed all but a mere handful of us. And so, my son, it has taken us twenty years to build up a race to avenge the brutal, the brutal harm done to us then. Now, since you are the only one of us left who can live on land and in water, who can also fly in the air, and because you have the strength of a thousand earthmen, it is your duty to lead us into battle. You have begun well. You must use strategy and great care. Go now to the land of the white people. And so, Namor, the avenging son, faces the surface men of the world in what promises to be mortal combat. And this is the end of the first eight pages that would have originally appeared in Motion Pictures 20 Weekly. And you can even see the box here at the bottom that has been blanked out that it really said uh, continued next week. Uh, and we get the first full 
figure shot of Namor. He has nothing on but his classic uh, green Speedo trunks and a gold belt and uh, a, a knife at his side. A knife in his hand. But the story continues. So, in the adjoining chamber, Namor meets his cousin, young Dorma. He tells her of his commission and his proposed trip. Oh, Namor, how wonderful. Take me with you, please. Now, here's something interesting to think about. Is later, later on in the, in the 60s, there's the, the Lady Dorma, who is uh, uh, Namor's love interest. And it seems like she is maybe the same character, because there does seem to be a uh, uh, some sort of affection here between uh, the two, especially her for him. Um they are drawn similarly, although uh, they have not been shown to have the blue skin uh, yet. Although they are calling the uh, the people uh, of land uh, white men as if they are not. Uh, but anyways, uh, let's continue on. It will be too dangerous, Dorma, but you may accompany me partway. Come now, we must hurry. But won't we have to take some equipment with us, Namor? Deciding that equipment will only hamper their progress, they travel light and leave the underwater castle with the heartfelt best wishes of the entire tribe. After traveling for two days at lightning speed, they stop for a rest and come to the surface at the first sign of civilization. This must be Cape and a lighthouse, Dorma. It gives me an idea. We can start our crusade right here. You see, if we demolish this light, it will endanger many ships and perhaps destroy them. It will be our first move. There's no telling how many people occupy the lighthouse, so we must take no chances. When the guard opens the door, I'll jump him and rush inside to wreck the controls. If anyone comes, yell to me. Quietly now. I hear someone coming. Knock, knock, knock. Hello? What? Oh, smack. Namor, quick, help. Uh, he is inside uh, messing with the controls while she is getting uh, grabbed by what appears to be a police officer, or at least a security guard. And Namor flies at the guy and tosses him into the water. Meanwhile, another pulls a gun from up top on the on the lighthouse. And Namor, like a flash, Namor leaps to the window. Oh no, my friend, you don't get away that easy. The guard shrieks in agony as Namor slashes mercilessly blow after blow. Namor, what are you doing? Look out, Dorma, coming down. And it looks like he, and he throws the, the guy down the stairs. Come on, girl, we've got to get to the top. We'll wreck the beacon light and take off as soon as we can. Hurry, Namor, we're being surrounded. Say, who are those people? Where do they come from? I don't know, Chief, but they're sure raising heck with the light. So now we have a, some some sailors, uh, could be Coast Guard, that are uh, that see what's going on. Dorma, there's our escape. When that plane flies near, we'll make a die for it. Hold tight now. With the speed of an arrow, Namor's wing feet shoot them straight for the plane. Quietly now and hurry. We must get rid of the pilot. Namor hurls himself upward and grapples with the pilot. The airman is no test for Namor's superhuman strength, and with a terrific blow, Namor sends him flying into space. Dormo, I'll have to leave you now. Wreck the ship somewhere and swim back home. I'll get in touch with you later. And of course, what he means is crash land the, sh the airplane and then she can swim home. And so Namor dives into the ocean on his way to further adventures in his crusade against white men. And that is the end of the first full uh, Namor story. And what I find really interesting about uh, Namor is he's not even an anti-hero here. He is a, a villain in this first, uh, first story. Although the setup is very uh, 
is very interesting and, and complex. And this storyline is going to play out over the next, uh, I don't know, nine, ten issues of Marvel Mystery Comics. Uh, as we discussed in the episode, The Human Torch versus the Submariner, the, uh, the stories follow right along, and, and they tell a, ser a serialized tale. It's not uh, uh, episodic so much as it is... Uh, uh, one long story broken up into multiple issues over uh, over time, and uh, it it culminates in that big battle between uh, the Torch and Samarina that we covered, that first one. And I don't know that I've ever read issue ten, uh, the individual stories in that issue. So it's a uh, it's a it's something else than, than begins then for both characters, but uh, it's I know it's very interesting, very. Very different, very different from a lot of characters. So, in the first, Marvel's two first big characters are, uh, you know, not straightforward heroes. They're, they're uh, one's a villain and one's the uh, uh, misunderstood monster. Okay, turning the page, we get the next uh, feature, the Masked Raider, and this is a western. So we have, uh, we're not going to read all through this. It's a, you know, a simple, uh, a, a uh, uh, here, here's, here's the, the tag from the, from the opening. Cal Brunder, powerful ruler of Cactusville, is attempting to force all the smaller ranchers to sell out to him at his own price. Uh, Brunder sends his gunmen to call on Jim Gardley. So that is the premise, and I believe, uh, Gardley turns out to be uh, the master raider, and essentially he is a cowboy with a mask completely covering his face, so a little lone ranger here. Uh, next up we have uh, a one-off story called Jungle Terror, and it is uh, not continued on uh, in the next issue. It is simply a uh, story about a uh, crash landing in the jungle and they have to uh, survive the uh, environment and the natives uh, there is a auto racing uh, story uh, next which is a two page uh, text story that is uh, uh, part and parcel of comics from the golden age uh, all the way up to the 60's that uh, companies had to use to secure cheaper shipping rates for the uh, for their books uh, it had to have so many uh, uh, pages of text for it to count uh, and next up we have Adventures of Kazar the Great Kazar from the famous character created by Bob Bird and this is where we get the first uh, comic book appearance of, of this character as I mentioned he was originally created by uh, uh, someone for Martin Goodman's Pulp Magazines. He had his own title called Kazar. Kazar. Um, your choice. I I'm probably going to say Kazar. I'm just going to stick with Kazar. And uh, this is an adaptation of that of that first story from that first issue. Uh, we'll just go through a little bit of it here. The, uh, the story was adapted by Ben Thompson. John Rand, young owner of a rich diamond field in the 
Transvaal, is flying from Johannesburg to Cairo with his wife and their three-year-old son, David. Over the heart of the Belgian Congo, the plane develops motor trouble and Rand is forced to come down to the thick, wild, tropical forest. So, as you can imagine, uh, the son, David Rand, uh, becomes a Tarzan type and makes friends with the animals, etc., And his dad uh, never fully uh, recovers uh, from the from a, a blow he he uh, he received from a falling tree. Uh, the irrational in every other respect, he labored under the delusion that the jungle was his home. Together, he and David survived and thrived. His beard became a luxuriant growth that Czar might have envied. Czar is the name for the lion. Some latent impulse had made John Rand teach his son to read and write, but David preferred playing with his friends to even such simple schooling. As David grew older, he liked to roam the forest. He could swim like Nyassa the fish and climb trees with all the agility of Nono the monkey. He even knew why his father had fired uh, at Ninjaga and why he killed the green snake. His was the only his was the code of the jungle: kill only when necessary. So he's very much uh, like uh, like Tarzan, if you're familiar with that. Even creating, you know, their own names for the different animals and stuff. Now, eventually, uh, David here is armed with a bow and arrow. Uh, father and son eventually uh, run afoul of some uh, other uh, uh, white men. Uh, a short distance away, uh, two natives scoop gravel from a stream watched by a fat white man. Dropping to the ground, Rand stepped into the clearing and walked straight to the group. From their actions, David knew that they were arguing and that his father was commanding them to leave. He also saw his father turn slowly on his heel and start back towards the rush. At that moment, Paul DeCraft, with a heart as greasy as the rolls of fat that covered his body, raised his gun and pointed at Rand's back. And so, he kills well, he doesn't kill his father, or does he? He doesn't. I'm sorry. Quickly, David fitted an arrow into his bow. John Rand was aware of a sudden humming beside his ear. In DeCraft's arm, an arrow quivered, and the automatic revolver dropped to the ground. David and his father silently faded into the jungle, but if David could have seen the devils leering out of Kraft's eyes, he would have known another. He would have placed another arrow in the man's throat. So, they start snooping around, and... Eventually, uh, they encounter Kraft again, and Kraft uh, threatens them and ends up killing uh, his father. And Czar, uh, the lion, ends up uh, coming on the scene and killing some of Kraft's men. With the death of his father, David was alone in the jungle. At twilight, he lingered in the clearing where his home was a head of a heap of ashes. Czar sensed the grief of the boy who once saved his life and with a low guttural uh, call, stepped into the clearing. In the language of the beast, Czar invited the boy to share his cave. He said that from that day on, David would be known as Kazar, brother of Czar the Mighty. And so the strange pair strode off through the jungle side by side to begin a new life for the son of John Rand. More adventures of Kazar in the next issue. So, 
there you have it and that is how the issue closes out it's uh, front-loaded with the three uh, best features I would say uh, at the beginning of the book issue and uh, we get Kazar at the very end and all in all that story isn't bad it's a uh, I guess uh, not too noteworthy a uh, riff on Tarzan and there were lots of uh, Tarzan imitators uh, back then Tarzan being one of the most famous and popular adventure characters of the first half of the 20th century so uh, not surprising and of course we had a uh, obligatory Western which were uh, uh, a big deal back then so that's that's it that's how it starts that's how it all starts for uh, for Marvel Comics timely comics becoming Marvel Comics that's our Marvel Comics number one now as I said uh, the uh, after the this first issue the the title is changed to Marvel Mystery Comics and with it going over mostly to superheroes and superhero type stories uh, for the remainder of the series we have uh, um, Marvel Mystery Comics running through uh, issue number 92, cover dated June 1949. Uh, with issue number 93, August 1949, it changes titles uh, to Marvel Tales, which is an anthology uh, horror, fantasy, science fiction stories. And eventually this is when the, 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 the company changes to Atlas. Uh, but it is notable that on the cover of number 93, the first Marvel Tales issue, it, it, it does say Marvel com a Marvel comic on it. Um, so many of the same uh, artists and writers worked on uh, the series and uh, uh, that have been working for Marvel or Timely at the time. And uh, this, uh, this will run... Uh, for 67 issues uh, through issue number 159, August 1957. Uh, it ended because of the collapse of Atlas's distributor, American News Company, and the subse subsequent restructuring that limited the number of comics the company could publish. Uh, so, that is the legacy of the, uh, the numbering for Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics number one, uh, Issues 2 through 92 were Marvel Mystery Comics, and 93 through 167, or 93 through 159 were uh, Marvel Tales. And uh, we'll see that Marvel Tales title, of course, used again in uh, later on when Marvel starts reprinting Spider Man and other uh, superhero stuff in the 60s. So, Marvel Comics. I mentioned that there was another use of the title Marvel Comics in 2019. And in 2019, Marvel was celebrating their 80th anniversary, the publication of Marvel Comics number one, this issue. And they published a, uh interesting issue to celebrate. It was called Marvel Comics number 1000. Sort of imagining that what if the numbering had continued and they were hitting an issue 1000 this is right around the same time just a little bit after i think that dc comics and detective and uh 
the DC Comics was celebrating uh, Action Comics number 1000 and Detective Comics number 1000, those two long-running series hitting issue number 1000. And so Marvel did the same by uh, having a Marvel Comics number 1000, despite there not being a uh, any issues in between 160 and uh, 9.99. Uh, that that issue is uh, you know it celebrates the history of the characters, the company. It has uh, old stuff. I think the Masquerader even makes an appearance in it in some form. There's lots of uh, lots of stuff in there for uh, for historical of uh, historical interest it's all new stuff um, uh, and then there was a second issue also uh, Marvel Comics 1001 but then that was it they only made two issues I was looking forward to uh, seeing where it was going there was supposed to be some sort of mystery uh, involved uh, that was running through uh, the, seer the 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 stories that if you read everything and you kept following, you would eventually uh, uh, figure out or, or have resolved for you. But uh, alas, it was not to be. Although I would be interested in in seeing uh, an issue one hundred two or it were it to ever be published. Ah, well, well, well. There we go. Marvel Comics number one. Uh, I enjoyed re. I enjoyed going through that with you. I enjoyed rereading it again. Uh, there's so much interesting stuff uh, for the Human Torch and Submariner. I don't think it's any doubt that uh, those are the standout characters. And uh, in, in going back through it and, and reading it, and in hindsight, it's uh, it's it's easy to see, but because uh, even even now those those concepts are are different. You know, your main character is with the Submariner as a villain in that story, a straight up villain, but he's gonna be you know, become the first anti-hero. And the Human Torch, he's ironically not even human, uh, despite it being part of his name. And he, there's just so much to me potential with, with, with that character that hopefully Dave and I will get to address when we, when we talk about the character uh, in, a, in a future episode. So thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I, I appreciate you tuning in. And uh, uh, next month, I feel pretty confident we're going to get that Seven Soldiers of Victory uh, episode with 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 Max Byrne. Uh, once again, it's just hard with uh, uh, schedules and stuff. I have limited time based on on my work schedule as a as a restaurant manager in the real world. Uh, so it's a little. It's a lot easier to just do a solo, a solo episode. But we're we're gonna get to it. We're not we're not sidelining it. It might come later than I hope, but but we're gonna get to it. All right. I appreciate you tuning in. Go read some comics.